0: Hey, before we get to this episode of Income Investing, I want to quickly tell you about an online course that I came out with. It's called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom. To make a long story short, I talk about how investors and entrepreneurs can build enough passive income to replace their expenses and become financially independent. If you listen to my podcasts or read my articles, then you already know how thorough I try to be whenever I put out content. I try to give realistic, actionable information that can make a difference in your life. To learn more about the Roadmap to Financial Freedom course, just go to alexisasadi.net slash podcast and scroll down to the very bottom of the page. There will be a link to a 2-minute explainer video that you can watch. The course costs under $10 and I explain why it's so inexpensive in that video. Again, it's alexisasadi.net slash podcast. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-A-S-S-A-D-I dot net slash podcast. Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 23 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. (music) On today's show, we're going to begin our foray into investment funds. We've spent the last three months exploring the intricacies of mortgage lending, and we're later on going to get to funds that invest in mortgages. But before that, I want to zoom way out and cover investment funds in general. As you may know, there are hundreds of thousands of funds out there that invest in anything from real estate to stocks to mortgages and much more. And there are tons that produce high levels of income on a monthly basis for their investors. So, once we've had a close hard look at investment funds as a whole, we'll then explore them by category. This is going to be a great segment of the podcast because a lot of these funds are open to almost anyone, especially if you're in the US or Canada. You'll be able to take immediate action on much of the material that we're going to discuss. As the title of the show gives away, my name is Alexis Asadi. I'm the host of the Income Investing Podcast, which airs each Wednesday morning. People like you and I tune into this show to learn about investments that pay dividends, either monthly or quarterly. So we like these sorts of assets for a few reasons, not least because we can use our investment income to supplement or even replace what we earn from our jobs or our businesses. Some people even reach a point called financial freedom, which is when our passive income exceeds our expenses. As well, a lot of income investments can appreciate in value, so in addition to earning cash flow from them, you can realize a capital gain. From that perspective, it's like getting the best of both worlds. You could make money on the price increase, but you get paid to wait until it does. Further, there's a variety of options to choose from. There are real estate investment trusts, there are investment funds, there are income stocks, P2P loans, rental properties, and so much more. So you can diversify your portfolio while still maintaining a healthy income component. And a lot of these investments are quite affordable. Many trade on the stock market and can be purchased for under a few hundred dollars. We're going to see plenty of examples as we continue through the upcoming material. All right, so let's do what we always do and address a question from one of our listeners. If you have something that you'd like me to discuss, you can always just let me know at alexasociety.net slash podcast. And remember, we carve out this section of the show for all topics, so your question doesn't have to be relevant to our current discussion. So today's question comes from Stefan, who's in Schenectady County, New York. He wanted to know if I think cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin will ever replace our current legal tender, or will it always be a fringe investment? Stefan, I think that something like Bitcoin won't ever replace the dollar for a few reasons, but I'll focus on just one component. It's anonymity. As you probably know, cryptocurrency transactions are difficult or even impossible to trace. You could send me Bitcoin and it's likely that nobody would ever be able to figure it out because there's no paper trail for the transfer. Now that's a problem for the government, which already takes issue when people make large cash purchases. It wants to know where money is moving so it can deter and prosecute crimes like tax evasion and money laundering and terrorist financing. That's why banks have to report it whenever someone withdraws $10,000 or more in cash. Notwithstanding any positive effects, the widespread adoption of untraceable cryptocurrencies would open the floodgates for financial crimes. It would be impossible to regulate, which I guess is sort of the point of cryptocurrencies. For example, if an employee earns his salary via bitcoin, how would the government know if he's paying the correct amount in taxes? or for that matter, how would it even know that he's getting paid? I just can't see a scenario where the government would be okay with not being able to track its flow of funds, and for that reason alone, I doubt that cryptocurrencies as we know them today could ever become legal tender. However, I do think that the underlying blockchain technology of some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum will become more prevalent. For example, there are a lot of companies like banks that are looking at using it to improve their security features. In fact, it's widely expected that the future of financial services is in blockchain. So that was a great question, Stefan. Thanks for asking it. I'm going to say no, untraceable cryptocurrencies will not become legal tender, but their foundational technology will probably change the world forever. Before we get any further, let me just quickly tell you that this episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income provides financing to entrepreneurs and real estate investors who need it to grow. Get the capital you need to build your empire. You can visit us online at pacincome.com. That's P-A-C-Income.com. I also did an entire show about Pacific Income just two weeks ago, so you can just go back to episode 21 to hear it. Alright, so let's get into today's discussion, the world of investment funds. This episode will be introductory, so I'm going to lay out some broad concepts and then we'll chip into them with each episode that follows. So what is an investment fund? Well, an investment fund is a business that pools money from different investors and then makes investments into other companies with it. The fund's aim is to generate a profit for its shareholders, which will be a function of how much of a return it earned with their capital, minus management fees, minus other expenses. For example, a fund might raise $100 million from 5,000 investors. It then invests their money into the stock market and earns 9% in a year. The fund pays a 2% management fee and incurs another half a percent in expenses, so the investors earn 6.5% on their money. As such, an investment fund can be divided into two main components. First, it raises money from investors. Depending on the structure, each investor will own a number of shares or units in the fund, proportionate to how much they invested. And second, the fund then uses that money to invest in securities, with the goal of passing on the returns to its owners. Now, this takes us to one of the most important terms that an investor could ever learn, and that term is security. So this is different than what we've been discussing in the context of lending. When a lender takes security in real estate, it usually means that she's placing a mortgage on a property. She's making her loan safer by securing it with real estate. But the word security is also a noun. It's a legal term for basically any sort of investment product except for direct ownership in real estate. It covers anything from stocks to bonds to mutual funds and promissory notes, etc. Even shares in a small business are considered to be securities. So if you invest in a stock, you have then purchased a security. But if you bought a house as an investment property, you did not buy a security. You purchased real estate. But if you invested in a company that owns real estate, then you did buy a security. And the government regulator for the US investment industry is the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. So unlike a traditional company, investment funds are in the business of raising money from investors and then using it to buy and sell securities in other companies. As we're about to see, These securities can range from blue-chip stocks, to bonds, to currencies, to alternative assets, and quite literally anything in between. Now, a fund will always have a specific mandate or an objective, and it's usually more defined than simply saying, we're going to try to make money for our investors. For example, it might focus on investing in a certain type of security, like mortgage loans or dividend-paying stocks, or even technology companies, or it might concentrate on results, like producing monthly income for investors. It might center on geographies and economies like Asia or emerging markets. Or investment funds could even zone in on strategies like short-selling or value investing. There are funds out there for almost everything, including mining and exploration, real estate, bonds, infrastructure companies, fixed-income products, money market products, farming and agriculture businesses oil and gas ventures, high-yield assets, tax-exempt investments, convertible debts and dividend stocks and balanced assets, and green energy companies, social impact and ethical investments, gold and precious metals, and there are also index funds and funds of funds. Each of these have their own objectives and risk. There's even a fund out there called the Vice Fund, which invests in tobacco, alcohol, gambling, and weaponry. An investment fund will also have a manager who is responsible for carrying out the fund's objectives and administering the business. It's quite common for the manager to be another company, which then employs a team of people. For example, the Vanguard Life Strategy Income Fund is managed by the trustees of Vanguard Star Fund, and in most cases, the manager will have a list of duties that include investing the fund's money and ensuring compliance with the law. And handling incoming investments and also requests from investors who want to cash out their investment. The manager will usually be compensated by earning a fee that's equivalent to its assets under management or AUM. For instance, if it charges a 3% fee per year and it manages a billion dollars, then the manager would earn $30 million a year for its services. It'll often earn bonuses too after reaching certain milestones for its investors. As well, the manager might get paid on certain activities, for example, as I mentioned in episode 21, it might earn the origination fee if it's a loan fund, and I've also seen real estate funds that pay an acquisition or a disposition fee to the manager each time the fund buys or sells a property. Funds can be attractive investments for various reasons. First, they can give investors exposure to certain markets, industries, strategies, and assets. For instance, if you like the prospect of mortgage lending, but you don't want to do it yourself, you could invest in a fund that buys and sells mortgage loans. Or if you want to invest in the technology space, you might invest in a fund that focuses on tech companies. Second, they can provide diversification. Most funds will own dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of assets within their portfolios. Third, a lot of funds are publicly traded. As such, you can invest in them from the comfort of your laptop, often with under $1,000. For example, one of the challenges that we saw with mortgage lending was that it can require having quite a bit of cash. A fund can give you exposure to that industry for a fraction of the cost, and a publicly traded fund Can offer both liquidity and capital appreciation. And fourth, many of these funds can be held within tax sheltered accounts like Roth IRAs and RRSPs. Of course, there are always downsides to any investment. First, you're ultimately trusting a fund manager to make good investment decisions on your behalf, and in most cases, you will have little to no ability to influence her choices. Not only are you banking on her capabilities, but you're also assuming that she's trustworthy and ethical. Now, most funds have independent auditors, so it's not that easy to get away with fraud, but it's still something to be aware of. And if you invest in a private fund with no independent auditor, then the door for theft and non-compliance is a lot bigger. Second, diversity can water down returns. For example, balanced mutual funds, which invest in a combination of stocks and bonds, can yield flat returns for investors if its stocks go up in value while its bonds go down. And third, a portion of your returns will be eliminated by the fund's management fees, and most if not all funds charge their fees regardless if investors earned a positive return, so you might consider whether you could do it better by yourself. So you should keep these pros and cons in the back of your mind as we continue through the subject. As I've said before, a lot of it boils down to the individual fund. You can find ones with great managers who charge reasonable fees and have a lengthy track record of doing well for their investors. And there are also funds out there with less than stellar performances. Now, the investment fund industry is an enormous and powerful place. There was an article published last October in City AM. Titled, World's Biggest Fund Managers Control More Money Than the Total Wealth of Europe, the article reported that over $80 trillion was managed by just 500 investment funds. And as of six months ago, the New York fund manager BlackRock had over $6 trillion of assets under management. That's about four times the entire annual GDP of Canada. A lot of the stock in major corporations is also owned by investment funds. They can impact the biggest employers and the most influential businesses on the planet. For example, some of the largest shareholders in Walmart and Apple are funds that are run by BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. So not only are funds important to study as an investment opportunity, but they should also be viewed through the lens of global influence. So given the size of the industry and the amount of opportunity there is for investors, I'm going to take my time with our segment on funds. I want to make sure that I cover each of the most important elements, including answering the following questions. Which kinds of funds pay income? How can they be researched? Where does one find them? What are the various types of funds and what are the differences between private and public investment funds? So I definitely encourage you to reach out to me via alexasasadi.net slash podcast because I often use your suggestions as ideas for episodes. So next week, we're going to look at some of the structural features of investment funds. For example, what are their legal entities and who manages them? And how do they determine how much income investors should receive, if any? And what happens if the fund loses money? But here are the key takeaways for today. Number one, we now know that investment funds are businesses that raise money from investors and use it to purchase and sell the securities of other companies. Number two, a security is any sort of investment product that is not direct real estate. It could be a stock or a unit or a bond or a promissory note, etc. The term security is extremely broad. Number three, Investment funds often specialize in certain industries, assets, and strategies. We're obviously going to focus on those that aim to pay income to their investors, but there are so many out there. Number four, each investment fund has its own objective, which is executed by the fund manager. Number five, funds all have different risk return profiles, which is why it's important to research them individually, and we're going to get to a lot of that going forward. So I'm going to leave it at that for today. If this was your first time joining us, thank you for stopping by. I definitely recommend listening to the prior episodes too, because I build up on the earlier material. And at the very least, I would suggest starting at episode number 10 and then working up from there. As well, please don't forget to check out my online course called The Roadmap to Financial Freedom, which you can find online at alexzasadinet slash podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll talk to you soon.